0: Normally, just preach through the Bible. You look at passages in the Bible and talk about it, trying to understand what um, it says and its original a message to us. And we're going to be doing the same thing today. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It should be printed in your bulletin for you as well. If you'd like to use a physical Bible, uh, there's one in front of you as well, if you didn't bring one. And if this is not something that you have at home, a Bible, then we'd love for you to take that one in front of you as a gift today. First Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12. It's impossible for me uh, to experience Easter without thinking about uh, the comedian Jim Gaffigan's bit about holidays. As I'm sure some of you have seen floating around, he makes fun of uh, the traditions we have at Christmas and and, uh, but also, Easter always comes up, and I always think about it. He, he says, you know, what should we do to celebrate uh, the resurrection of Jesus? Then he changes his voice, and he says, how about eggs? Makes total sense, right? And then changes voices again, you know. What does that have to do with Jesus? Okay, we'll hide them, you know. Don't worry, there's a bunny. I mean, there's so many things around Easter, right? We dress up, we hang out with family, We hide eggs. There's lots of traditions, trappings, and um, you'll get no argument from me. (coughs) I love the trappings of holidays. We have the Easter egg hunt. I love the colors, and you guys look on point this morning. I mean, you look amazing, so thank you for dressing up today. It's a big improvement. (coughs) So, but despite those trappings, you know, that, that we have, it's also really good for us to talk about, seriously, what are we doing here? And that's a big part of Easter. And I want to be real with us, and I want to be straight today about what it is I think that Easter is and why it's important to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. When we talk about the resurrection from the dead, I think most of us know that that's referring to Jesus rising on the third day after He was killed on the cross. And there's really only three ways that you can understand that because the Bible says that Jesus rose from the dead. And there's really only three reactions you can possibly have to that news. And the first one is that you can say that it is absolute nonsense. And that perspective makes a lot of sense, as Paul is even going to acknowledge It is not usually our experience to see people rise from the dead, and so to think, to have the impulse towards that's nonsense makes a lot of sense, and there's plenty of people who do believe it is nonsense. I saw memes uh, this week, even from college buddies who were uh, making fun of what Christians believe, and if I had their worldview, I understand, right? This is nonsensical thing called the resurrection from the dead. You can believe it's absolute nonsense. The third thing, I'll skip the second one for now, The third way that you can approach it is that you can believe straightforwardly that the scriptures teach that Jesus was raised from the dead, that his physical body was passed out of this life and came back in in a physical way. That is what the church has taught for millennia. The second position that you can have is that you can believe that the resurrection maybe didn't happen, but it is somewhat of a metaphor. That it is metaphorically true that Jesus rose from the dead and therefore, metaphorically, we can rise above our own problems. He goes ahead of us and teaches us how to have our own resurrection. And you don't have to believe in the historical resurrection of Jesus in order to believe in the idea of resurrection. There's a separation between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. And so we, and this person in the second position holds as we believe in the Christ of faith, that Christ is an important figure, but we don't believe that he was historically true or accurate in all the ways that the Bible says. What the Apostle Paul is going to tell us this morning is that the first position and the third position make the most sense that the resurrection presents a crossroads for us, and I want to be straightforward about it today, that it represents a crossroads of absolute nonsense or absolute truth. And he does so in this famous passage of 1 Corinthians 15, that John Updike, the famous two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist, poet, critical writer, probably read an anthology in high school, edited by John Updike, wrote about in 1960 using this 1 Corinthians 15 passage as an inspiration for his poem The Seven Stanzas at Easter. And we ran out of these, so I'm not sure that everybody got one uh, printed for you, but if you didn't, we'll find a way to connect one with you. We have these prints this morning of The Seven Stanzas of Easter. let try to follow along. I'm just going to read a little bit of it because he makes the same point. He says, make no mistake... If he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules renit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. The fourth stanza: let us not mock God with metaphor. analogy, sidestepping, transcendence. The last stanza: Let us not seek. To make it less monstrous for our own convenience, our own sense of beauty, lest awakened in one unthinkable hour we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. Now, there's a lot of big words there, and the poem takes a a year to digest. But what he says here is that the church hinges on the resurrection. And so. Let's not be embarrassed by the miracle. Let's not sidestep the transcendence. Let's walk through the door and talk about what it is for a few minutes. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just these eight verses we'll read from Paul's argument. Let's read it together. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Very clearly, Paul talks about two things in this passage. If, but in fact. If. He spends time looking at a speculation on if Christ was not raised. And then he concludes, but in fact. Calls the resurrection of Christ a fact. I want to talk about that. In what sense... Is the resurrection a fact? How do we understand what a fact is? But first, we need to do what He does here, which is to speculate on whether Christ was raised from the dead or not. It's a what-if scenario. What if Christ wasn't raised? And it's important for us to think about that. Should we think about things? Should we challenge ourselves with trying to understand whether this is real or not? Absolutely we should. Paul does it here. He engages in a what-if scenario. We love what-if historical scenarios. How many shows and you know, programs are about this? I remember reading Stephen King's book, 11-22-63. 11 63 if you're not familiar, is the date when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And Stephen King, normally a horror writer, he wrote this book. It's, It's more accessible if you're squeamish about such things. You can read this book and you won't be too scared. But it's a book about time travel. And it asks the question, what if? What if we could go back in time and we could orchestrate things such that John F. Kennedy wouldn't be assassinated? What if we could do that? What would change? Would the Cold War end faster? Would we maybe not even go to Vietnam because Lyndon B. Johnson wouldn't be the president because JFK wouldn't be shot. Like, what if this happened? Would it be better? Certainly it would be better for Jackie and the kids, but would it be better for the world? It asks that question. And so the character who was able to time travel sets out to do that very thing. But the past fights him and keeps him uh, away from an alternate future. And so the book is really about what some people call the butterfly effect, which is how does one event affect another event? If I eat life cereal instead of Wheaties for breakfast, that little small change in the world, what kind of ripple effects does that have? The greater the event, the greater the effect. So that may be a small change with what you eat for breakfast, but what if we could change the events of world history with a president being shot? Whether he ultimately succeeds or not, I'll leave you to read, but I will say that he gets a glimpse into the world of what it would be like if history was ultimately changed, and he sees that it is utterly unrecognizable and utterly hopeless. And I'm here to Assert this morning with historic Christianity that what the faith would be is utterly unrecognizable and utterly hopeless without what we're celebrating today. But it's important to see and to say, what if? So let's do that. What if the resurrection isn't true? Paul says five things would not be true. Number one, faith is pointless. If there is no resurrection, your faith is pointless. Verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. The message, the content of the message, the preaching of this message, and the message itself is pointless. Now, think about this the organizational risk that Paul is taking here by writing this. Paul is trying to start a movement of churches. That's what he's doing. The strong temptation would be, what if you know, uh, I could just change the message to make it a little bit more palatable? I can make it a little bit more easy to swallow. I'm sure he wrestled with that. But he is so committed to the idea of the resurrection that he says, you shouldn't listen to my preaching. You shouldn't be here if the resurrection isn't true. And we have to say the same thing for us. New Valley Church should not exist as a church without the resurrection. It is pointless. It is a waste of energy, of time, of focus. Maybe you think we could still help people. There's probably better, more efficient ways of doing some of the things that would be the result. If the resurrection is gone, then the heart of it is gone. It's pointless. Number two, the witnesses were liars. If Christ was not raised. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. Paul is saying, we have to go, we've gone on record here. We testify. We've started this movement. It's all over the country now. Pastor Gray stands before you now witnessing about the resurrection. Therefore, the witnesses. And especially the original witnesses are liars if it is true that Christ was not raised. There are historical records in the Bible and outside the Scriptures of people witnessing the resurrection. Is it possible that those accounts are falsified? Of course it is. Of course it's possible. It's possible to believe that there was a group of liars. Of course that's true. But the question would be, Why would they lie? Is it because of the great financial gain that they received by following Christ? No. They lost everything. Is it because of the great reputation that they garnered for themselves more like infamy? Is it because of the pleasure and the significance that they enjoyed? No, it's the persecution and death that they experienced on behalf of Christ. think you see what I'm saying as Professor Tandoriani, an author, says, do people die for lies? Yes, sometimes they do. But do people die for lies that they themselves created? No. When we look at the Scriptures, we see the most stringent denials, the most... (laughs) um, Obvious examples of people not believing in the resurrection are found in the Scriptures themselves. Christ's own disciples don't believe Him. Thomas has to touch Him before He believes. The women don't recognize Him at the tomb. There there is no consensus at the beginning about this. And so why would the testimony go out? And why would the record state all of the opposition? The Bible is not full of gullible people. It's full of people who, like you and me, do not experience resurrection on a daily basis. And yet, there are many accounts. But you need to believe that they're all liars if there is no resurrection. third thing, evil is triumphant. Verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins." The resurrection could be nothing more or the crucifixion could be nothing more than a nice gesture. This person who went to the cross, Jesus, his death would be final like everyone else's. As noble as it might have seemed at the time, nothing else would really have changed except for a little bit of inspiration. And everything that is wrong with us and everything that is wrong with the world is still attached to us and there's no real reason to believe that it will have relief. The question becomes, why do we want the world to be better? Why is it built within us that we want salvation, that we want rescue, that we want change? And many of us actually, whether we profess the name of Christ or not, actually believe that there will be change, that there will be a greater period beyond where we are. And the question is, why do we believe that if there is no life after this death? The fourth thing is that the dead are lost. Verse 18, Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. You know, reading a lot of Shakespeare in high school and college, there's really only two endings to a Shakespeare play. Comedy and tragedy, funeral or marriage ceremony. And it takes a long time for the wisdom of that worldview to settle in. But eventually you begin to see that time is marked in this way. It's by these unions and by these fallings away of union with the world. And as I get older, I know that I will do more funerals than weddings And you, as you get older, will attend more funerals than you will attend weddings. And something profound happens when you're standing at the graveside of someone that you know and you love. Maybe a family member or a friend. And it's hard to describe with words. Impossible, really. But there's an overwhelming feeling of, did that person just cease to exist? I mean, what happened here? There's just something wrong about this picture. And there's some desperate, clawing hope that rises within you that it might not be true. And Paul says, if there is no resurrection, the dead are lost. If there is no resurrection, fifth and finally, there is no future. Verse 19, and in Christ... We have hope in this, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is all there is if there is no resurrection. People sometimes misunderstand the Christian faith to say that it's all about the afterlife. They say things like, well, Christians just believe that you suffer, suffer, misery, misery. Then you get a big bonus at the end. That's not true. Jesus came to give us life abundantly right now. But that life abundant right now is intimately connected to the future. You cannot separate those two things. The future gives meaning to the present to everyone despite what your worldview is. The engine of the present runs on the fuel of the future. It's what keeps it going. There has to be something else. Otherwise... All we do here is to grasp at whatever can be felt or experienced or known however briefly, and even the most hedonistic person, the most in-the-moment person that you know or maybe that you are knows that the eventual emptiness of that proposition to just have what we have now is hopeless. That's the if. Paul is very straightforward. It fuels the imagination. What if? What if Christ had not been raised from the dead? Important for us to see. But then he closes this section by saying this but in fact, but in fact, in fact, on 11 22 63, John F. Kennedy was killed. And in fact, on the third day, Christ was raised from the dead. Do those two things belong together? Those two statements. Can we say that the resurrection is a fact in the same way that we believe the fact about what happened on 11-22-63? What makes a fact? What makes something verifiable? If we ask most people today, they would say, well, the things I trust the most... Are scientific science makes things valid, and science is amazing, something that we should all study and follow and trust in, absolutely. But there's two problems with science being the only way that we have towards facts. The first problem is that it is an ongoing discipline. Things have changed over the years. different views of the world, different understandings of how science works have changed had predominance and so we cannot say always that it's a fact it's a fact for now because it changes but the second and maybe more important reason that we can't have that as the only way where we get facts is because it has nothing to do with history science also doesn't prove on 11 22 63 that jfk was assassinated nor that George Washington existed. It cannot prove those things. We believe those facts for other reasons. What is a fact? What makes it strong? What makes it certain? I'd like to talk as we close today about the, the three strands of the, that weave together into the rope that is Paul's certainty on the resurrection. Because certainty always has reference to more than one thing. There's no such thing that we believe in a vacuum. I defy you to give me an example of something that we believe just because it is. We believe things in reference to other things. So there's always more than one strand to our belief. Always. Whether we're talking about the resurrection of Christ or anything else, it always involves several things. And Paul and the testimony of his life gives us the three strands that make up the rope of his certainty. And the first one is this, that it is historical. Paul believed in the historical resurrection of Jesus. He says so earlier in this chapter in verse 3. Here it says, For Paul believed that there was an eyewitness account, which is how we do all history, by the way. All history is based on eyewitness account. And he believed that this eyewitness account was captured. He believed it to be a falsifiable event. What that means is that he was willing to state the names of people still living who gave witness to this fact and could be disproved. Other Christians and historians whether they're Christian or not in the later period have studied the resurrection from a historical standpoint asking this strong question what gives rise or explains the rise of Christianity in the first 3 centuries of its existence in it, the first century it is relatively unknown the sect of Judaism viewed from the outside the 2nd century, Christianity is illegal and punishable by death. And by the 3rd century, it is the official religion of Rome. What explains the meteoric rise of Christianity? Historically, many have studied that. And one plausible answer is the eyewitness, the fire that spread of the resurrection of Christ. He believed it was historical. He also believed, secondly, the second strand of the rope was that it was reasonable. One of my favorite stories in Scripture is Paul talking to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. He's got an audience with King Agrippa, and he also has uh, Festus there, who is the, uh, a Roman governor. And in Acts 26, he's telling the story of his... Uh, conversion and he talks about being met by Jesus and he's telling the story and he gets right to the point about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's part of his story. He gets to that point about the resurrection and right when he says those words, Festus interrupts him. This is an exact quote. Paul, you are insane. You're great learning. You're so smart, Paul. You're so smart it's made you mixed up. You're crazy. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words or reasonable words. For the king knows about these things and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner, Paul says, everybody is talking about this. The king knows about it. I'm giving you the most reasonable understanding I can of what has happened. Was it effective? Well, what King Agrippa says to Paul when he gets done talking is, if you keep talking, I'm going to become a Christian. You've just about persuaded me. Paul was a learned smart person he believed in the resurrection historically he also believed in it by rational words by reason but there is a third strand of the rope and one that we cannot discount it is personal paul says i was one as untimely born and christ appeared to me he shook me he altered the course of Paul's life. He gripped Paul, and Paul knew that the resurrection was a fact. But in fact, he has been raised from the dead because he experienced Jesus as the resurrected king. Is believing in something personally or experiencing something reason enough to call it a fact? Not just because of that, of course. There's always more than one thing that goes into a fact and yet it is a part of it that cannot be discounted no matter what it is that you're talking about as tim keller great pastor and author has said the most important things we believe in are things that can't be proven that is absolutely true let me give you an example i want to tell you a statement that i hope that you agree with all human beings have equality and dignity all human beings have equality and dignity. Do you believe that's a fact? I hope you do. That's a fact. All human beings have equality and dignity. Now how do you prove that? Can you prove it scientifically? Actually, you can make a counter-argument scientifically. Let's look at genetics. Let's see how well people are formed. Maybe we should <coughs> prioritize some people over others. can't prove it scientifically. Can you prove it historically? (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Can you prove that historically? That's a bad path to go down. Is it true (coughs) historically that we've always treated people equally with dignity and honor and equality? Can't prove that historically. Historical arguments help. Sound reasoning is beautiful. But some things we know because of personal experience and because of what happens to us in our guts. You must encounter the risen Lord in order to believe that His resurrection is a fact. If you want the rope of certainty to grip you, And to hold you fast, it needs to not just come from a book or from a rational argument or from a preacher, but from Christ Himself confronting you and finding you where you are and changing you. I remember the story that helped me fall in love with literature. Reading it. I was in high school, early, I think ninth grade, and I read... An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Bierce, part of his Civil War Stories collection. It's just in an anthology, probably edited by John Updike, I don't know. (laughs) And um, I'll tell you the story very briefly. It's about four or five pages long, really short story. It's a man at Owl Creek Bridge and he is being hanged, the noose is around his neck and he's standing on a board that's about to be pulled out from under him and he's going to be hanged for being a confederate sympathizer and he's been captured. And as the noose is put around his neck, he hears a thud, thud, thud and he realizes it's his own stop wa- his own uh, watch, pocket watch in his pocket. And he hears that the thud is slows down. It's like time is slowing down. The board falls out beneath him and he imagines the noose breaks and he falls into the water. He plunges deep beneath and he can't breathe because the rope is still around his neck, but he struggles to the surface and he gets the rope off and there's soldiers on the banks and they're shooting at him, but miraculously he is missed and so he gets out onto the shore and he goes and finds a trail and he goes down this trail and he gets lost and he doesn't know where he is and he starts to lose hope. And then he sees the trail back to his house and he recognizes it. And he runs down it and he goes towards his house. And as he approaches, he sees his wife. She comes out uh, of the front door and he is about to reach out and touch her. When he feels something at the back of his neck and he falls down onto the ground into blackness and the story ends with him swinging beneath the Owl Creek Bridge. He's imagined the whole thing. And the whole story lines up with his descent from the top to the bottom. And I read that and me, I just my mind exploded as a ninth grader. You can do that, right? You can have a surprise ending to a story. You can, you can slow down time. You can do things. You can stir the imagination that way. I just remember just being blown away by that. And I saw that story on my shelf just a couple weeks ago. I was trying to find something to read right before bed, and I decided I would read it again to see what kind of impact it would have on me. And I read it again, and I saw everything that I had seen. And of course, the surprise was somewhat gone because I knew the ending. I remembered the ending. It had such an impact. The surprise was so much gone, the bewilderment, the Obsession was somewhat gone, but there was a sense of settled joy as I saw what was to me something that was very beautiful and meaningful. And I had that same sense of joy. I had moved from an analysis of the story, from an experience of the story, to the fact of the story and what it had done in my life. And the resurrection of Jesus is something that I believe to be historical. I believe it to be a reasonable thing. I believe it to be an experiential thing in my own life. But it must move to this place of being part of us. Our absolute hope is in the resurrection of Jesus. And my prayer straightforwardly for you is that if you are in analysis, that you'd be able to move from analysis to experience. And if you've only experienced it, but you've never actually thought about it, that you would actually move out of that experience and more into analysis. But at some point, those two things would merge together and it would become to you what it is to me, what it is to the Apostle Paul, a fact. And I would encourage us to not, as John Updike says, sidestep transcendence to not mock God with a metaphor to not be embarrassed by the miracle but to walk through the door and see that he is risen he has indeed let's pray